Hello and welcome back to Everyday Oral Surgery. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. I'm an oral maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Denver, Colorado, and I really appreciate you tuning into the episode today. Thanks to all those who have emailed and texted me ideas about topics for the podcast or guests they want to hear from. If you would like to be a guest on the show or know someone you'd like to hear from, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com. Also, please visit our website, everydayoralsurgery.com, if you'd like to search the podcast in an easier way by topic. We'd like to hear from everyone and really appreciate you guys listening. Keep in mind that everything we're discussing here is based on personal experience and opinions, so please supplement everything you're learning here with approved research studies. Without further ado, please enjoy today's episode. All right, welcome to another episode. Today I'm with Dr. Andrew Yenzer. He's an oral maxillofacial surgeon practicing in North Carolina. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast yet again. Thanks, Grant. Happy to be back. Yeah, this is great. I've gotten a lot of good feedback on the medicine episode you did. I think there's just a lot of good use for private practice surgeons who just want to brush up and then a lot of residents kind of studying for boards and other type of testing situations. So I really appreciate you giving us some of these more informational type episodes. Of course. Yeah. Happy to hear that. Hopefully it can be a, you know, at least a reasonable resource for the whole spectrum from residents to practicing surgeons to just like that episode today, hopefully we'll kind of do a similar review that's half focused at the resident education level and half some pearls and tips for people dealing with this stuff in practice. Well, good. So could you get us started here just on talking a little bit about the endocrine system? Absolutely. Yeah. Today we're going to talk about some endocrine kind of focused towards some of the most common entities. And I'd like to start where most endocrine stuff starts with the the most common, right? So I want to start talking about diabetes. And as usual, I would absolutely recommend that don't take my opinions on things. Please look up and verify medical information before you use it in patient care. But what is diabetes? Diabetes mellitus is a metabolic disorder characterized by hypoglycemia. It has a complex multifactorial ideology that has characteristics of either insulin dependence and or insulin resistance. Now, classically, we think about type 1 and type 2 diabetes, who I would imagine most people listening to this are familiar with. If you're a resident kind of getting ready to spend time on other services or, you know, even how some of us practicing notate this as well, it's important to also really consider how we notate this and break it down into insulin-dependent diabetes mellitus versus non-insulin-dependent diabetes mellitus. So IDDM versus NIDDM. I also like to characterize it by that just simply because there's such a high prevalence of type 2 diabetes that is, you know, almost becoming close to a type 1 just because it is so insulin-dependent. So characterizing the disease state by the, the lack or the need for insulin dependence is also a good idea. Now, if we kind of briefly remember, type 1 is about 10% of people with diabetes, type 2 is about 90%. And type 1, we have that autoimmune destruction of the pancreatic beta cells, which produce the insulin. So it's a pure lack of insulin. Versus in type 2, we have insulin resistance and a relative lack of kind of responsiveness. Now, just thinking about some questions we ask our patients with diabetes to We want to kind of figure out how well controlled or how well not controlled their diabetes is. So asking questions about any complications they might have from this disease state, like vision issues, kidney problems, any neuropathies, any episodes of some entities that we'll talk about in detail here, DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis, or HHS, 
severe hypoglycemia. So I kind of think about it like that, almost that asthma patient where I'm trying to really ask a lot of questions to ascertain how well controlled, how bad the process is, how much of it it's affecting the other organ systems in their life. As we know, diabetes has a, increases the risk of having coronary disease and stroke. So any of those issues or problems. And now let's talk about kind of one of the main laboratory things that we always ask about, you know, do you know your HbA1c or when was the last time you had that laboratory study done? And what is that test? I want to explore that a little bit more because what it does is it looks at how much of our hemoglobin is glycosylated and HbA1 is one of the types of hemoglobin that we have in our blood. And it actually has two alpha and two beta chains. And HbA1 makes up about 98% of our hemoglobin, where the other 2% being HbA2 and a small amount of HbF or fetal hemoglobin. And the C that we add on for the HbA1C test does essentially stands for the amount of glycosylated hemoglobin. And as most of us know, this test measures about one to three months of somebody's glycemic control. And it's important to remember, though, kind of how this works. I mean, we're looking at red blood cells, which have an average lifespan of about 120 days. So that's kind of where that three to four months of a red blood cell. And that's why this test kind of looks at about that three month period. But it's important to understand that the test is slightly weighted toward the closer time interval. So it's a little bit more preferentially looking at the closest four to six weeks of the test as opposed to the further away four to six weeks in terms of that three-month window, simply because of that lifespan of the right blood cells. And then we can look at a kind of average chart that correlates the percentage of HbA1c to our blood sugar. If you're not familiar with that, I'd recommend checking it out. But in general, if somebody has an HbA1c of six, that corresponds to an average blood sugar of about 126, somewhere close to the realm of normal. Whereas a HbA1c of nine correlates to an average blood sugar of 212. The highest I've seen, I had a really bad case infection that the patient ended up staying in the hospital for about a month. But when they came in initially and hadn't been to the doctor in 30 years, because they were very scared of going to the doctor and had uncontrolled diabetes, his HbA1c was 16.5. And I think that was the highest I've, I've ever seen. <laughs> Definitely troubling in the setting of significant neck swelling and still starting to lose his airway and a number of other issues that he was having. So I don't know, Grant, do you remember that one as a patient ever walked in your office that's had just something kind of wild like that or makes you pretty concerned immediately about their blood being essentially maple syrup? Yeah, I mean, we have patients who just look bad, you know, and they kind of look pale and sweating and overweight and just kind of once you start probing and kind of getting history like you're saying and well how well you know do you take care of diabetes and how often do you check your sugars and usually when we see these people which isn't often maybe once or twice a year they just have no idea when the last time they checked their sugar was they're not taking their medications and then we'll do the glucometer and check it there in the office you know it's usually sky high like four or five hundred sometimes it's very concerning and Oh, wow. Yeah, generally it's abort the procedure. We had to do that recently and get him to the emergency room and get him taken care of. Yeah, that certainly sounds like the right thing. And so the normal value for the HbO1c is about 5.7 or below. Really 5.7 to 6.4 is kind of that pre-diabetic range. And one of the criteria that we'll talk about for diabetes is an HbO1c of 6.5 or higher. So that's really kind of where we start getting into this disease process. 
briefly, some of the common signs and symptoms, the polys, right? We have polyuria, polydipsia, polyphagia. When these folks have a lot of extra sugar in their blood, their body tries to compensate. So with all these extra sugar molecules, it's going to raise the serum osmolality. So they're going to want to stimulate thirst and drink water to try to dilute that and try to, your body's trying to pee out that sugar. So they're going to be just drink, 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 incredibly thirsty and having to continue to urinate. And a lot of those things can start to explain some of the signs and symptoms with that increased serum osmolality. We have blurry vision in the long run, you know, fatigue, weight loss, some of the things you're mentioning, right? Especially if they're in one of these acute episodes, pale, diaphoretic, they can start to affect a lot of their organ systems. Obviously, they can have a lot of urinary tract infections because of the, you know, sugar content in the blood. In terms of the testing, there are, for my residents, you know, these are some criteria that, you know, you should want to kind of know what are the diagnostic tests that like definitively diagnose diabetes. So one of those is we, like we discussed, the hemoglobin A1C over six and a half, a fasting glucose that's greater than 126. And then there's a couple other ones, right? The two hour post 75 gram glucose load that's with over 200 and a couple other random ones like that, a random glucose that's greater than 200 with symptoms. But in the absence of symptoms, you you must have two positive tests on the same or different days. Uh, And there's also a whole separate set of criteria for prediabetes that I'm not going to go into. And remember, like a lot of our disease processes, the first line treatment is lifestyle modification, right? Lose weight, increase your diet you know, do all those things to try to help lose it for, especially for type two diabetics, not type one. And there are a whole range of therapeutic options, the oral hypoglycemics, injectable medications, all the various insulin that ranges from injectable to pumps. But let's deep dive a little bit here into the the particularly bad things that can happen. And that is DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis, and HHS, which stands for hyperglycemic hyperosmolar state. And these are kind of inherently different entities, but there's a few important concepts that apply to these before we dive into them in particular. The first one is that there is no defined blood sugar range or number that indicates somebody is or is not into this. So you can't associate this with a particular number. There are ranges roughly associated with them, But if somebody has a blood sugar of, say, 300, it does not mean they're necessarily in DKA, for example. And the second is that even though generally we associate DKA with a type 1 diabetic, it is still possible to have DKA in a type 2 diabetic, although it's quite rare. So it is possible to get kind of switched around, although you can't really have HHS with a type 1 diabetic. But just be aware that those associations are not definitive. And so let's start with DKA or diabetic ketoacidosis. So if you could understand what's happening here, it pretty much explains all the symptoms that develop from that and the problems. And here, the complete lack of insulin has stopped the cell's ability to transport sugar inside of it. So the sugar builds up in the blood and the cells have to scramble and switch to an alternate metabolic pathway in order to continue to survive and to make ATP. So fatty acids start to get broken down for energy. And during this process, acetyl-CoA gets metabolized to produce ketone bodies. The other kind of product of this metabolic pathway is we also have beta-hydroxybutyrate. And both of these are kind of the definitive ways that we differentiate DKA from HHS. We can test for both of these in the urine, both ketone bodies and beta-hydroxybutyrate. 
that's so typically when somebody comes in your concern, they'll get a urine test to kind of look for these because that will indicate the body has gone in this alternate metabolic pathway. And you also get the product of uh, acetone that's produced, which gives you the characteristic fruity breath that they always describe in people with DKA. These ketone bodies also are very acidic with a low PKA, so really contribute to this picture of this overall metabolic acidosis. Now, in general, you'll see and we people usually think about DKA with a blood sugar of 250 or greater, understanding that it could happen low less because we know it's not a specific number or range. We'll see in HHS, the number is usually significantly higher, 600 to 1,000. But DKA, a little bit lower usually that, kind of 250 to 400, although it certainly can be higher. We get all those symptoms and signs that we talked about earlier, the polyuria, polydipsia, blurry vision, nausea, vomiting. It's interesting, too, if we think about our body being in this metabolic acidosis, remember that the respiratory system can compensate very quickly. So a lot of times our our patients will be doing this kind of hyperventilation, uh, this deep breathing, which actually has a name, cusmal breathing. So they're trying to breathe out all those estrogen extra hydronium ions by increasing their ventilatory status. So the respiratory system is trying to compensate. The main problem in both of these states is actually dehydration. All that sugar we talked about that's building up in the blood, causing them to urinate so much is really kind of the main issue here that can really affect people. So usually people in DKA are six to eight liters of fluid down, which means that, you know, as we start briefly to talk about treatment, aggressive rehydration is really what you need to start to do quickly and get that fluid back in them. Because obviously being substantially dehydrated, you can have, you know, a lot of problems. There's usually an inciting event associated with this, another illness, something that goes on to kind of push them over the edge into this state. The other important thing here to really think about is potassium. If and when you get an initial set of labs, of course, you would get this patient fully worked up in an emergency room. It's often normal or slightly high, but we have to remember that this is not real. And usually it's actually kind of masking the problem. And it's usually either normal to low. And that is because the way that insulin brings sugar into the cell is it uses potassium kind of as an indirect co-transport ion. You know, insulin kind of stimulates that GLUT4 channel protein along with others. There's a sodium potassium ATPase associated with it. So as soon as you start to use insulin to drive sugar into cells, the potassium will get driven back into the cells too, and the blood potassium levels will fall dramatically. Usually what this means is somebody's initial potassium could be, you know, a normal range being like 3.5 to 5. It might be 5.5 when they come in and actually look a little bit elevated. But as soon as you start to correct the problem and give the patient insulin along with rehydrating, their potassium will crash. So usually you almost start potassium replacement right away. There's some guidelines based on what that initial level is, but it's something you check extremely frequently and replace aggressively along with other electrolytes, but really potassium is the main one. And if we kind of laterally think about, this is the same logic we use for the treatment of hyperkalemia. You know, when we have too much potassium, we can use insulin to drive it into the cells to get the levels down to prevent those cardiac complications and other things. And it's sim- it works because of that exact mechanism we just described. So it's a good thing to link that in your mind together. What do you think, Grant? Any, uh, any DKA questions or thoughts at this point? No, I like how you simplified it and talked about it being an issue more of dehydration and the need to get those fluids going as soon as possible. And in terms of the fluids, the recommendation is, is lactated rings. It 
funnily enough, uh, and I know we haven't talked about it, maybe we'll at some point about residents, it's extremely important to know what fluids you're using and what is exactly in those fluids. And briefly, you never really want to resuscitate somebody with normal saline because particularly the high levels of chloride, which is 154 compared to our body's base level of about 100 to 110, because you can put somebody into a non-anion gap hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. But the literature, funnily enough, even as recently as three years ago, if you actually went to look at some of it, they recommended rehydrating these patients with normal saline. And I remember reading that and being like, why would you give somebody in this profound metabolic acidotic state, like six to eight liters of normal saline? Like, that's crazy. You would do some, you know, potentially terrible things. And I remember asking some of my internist friends about this and they were like, yeah, I don't know why that recommendation is. There's just no good evidence. Well, actually the evidence recently got published and changed the paradigm to rehydrate with LR. So kind of funny that it caught up, but make sure you understand your fluids. They are drugs as well. I'll be happy to explore that at a different time later on. But yeah, great thought. That was one of my questions as well, though, just as a side note, maybe, I mean, not with DKA, but what fluids do you recommend just for the patient who's coming in fasting, but has diabetes type one or two, and then, you know, they're being sedated. Is there a certain fluid you recommend or is it just kind of case by case? Great question. And I think dogmatically, because we spend so much time training with anesthesia, that we have a similar viewpoint as a profession as them. And that is that we, in general, prefer more physiologically balanced solutions. You'll see, especially like our general surgery colleagues, will use a lot more kind of normal saline at different concentrations for their floor patients and other things where I think most of us tend to use more things like LR or plasmolite, depending on what you have or your institution, which are kind of closer to our physiologic norms. Personally, I like to use uh, LR. That's kind of the, the one I usually have around. Is I know I think plasmolite is substantially more expensive, so I'd be surprised. I, I don't. What do you have in your practice, Grant? Yeah, it's usually LR or normal saline. Cool. I just really I do not like putting a lot of normal saline into somebody. I usually try to go through, and I actually, for most folks, think about that calculation that we used to do on anesthesia to figure out their fluid deficit when they come in for whatever procedure I'm going to do, right? And residents, if you're not familiar, you know, spend some time with this, but briefly you take, if they're an adult, take their weight in kilograms, add 40 to it, multiply it by the hours NPO. And most people, by the time they're even coming into surgery are, you know, one to 1.5 liters down. And then, you know, as soon as we start the sedation and give them a lot of drugs that have vasodilatory effects that can really drop their blood pressure. So I usually like to use liter bags, use LR, And, you know, I usually am pretty aggressive about getting like 500 cc's into them kind of open on the front side to really help support their hemodynamics a little bit. I think it makes it a little bit smoother during the procedure, but it's one of those things where it's, you should definitely think about what you use and why. In terms of particularly diabetic patients, I don't have really a a preference. It's not like I switch fluids or kind of do other things. I know there's a potential argument that you could say the lactate that gets kind of turned into a buffer may mess with the glycemic index a little bit, but in actuality, I think the percentage and the amount of that is going to be so small. I don't think it makes a huge difference. Although I haven't seen any evidence to that. So. No, some surgeons kind of feel like they all always need to give the diabetic patient that's fasting fluids with dextrose in it. I mean, is that really that helpful? Is that more just for the patient who really tests and their sugars are low and stuff like that? 
I would say so. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that as we start to talk about the specifically the preoperative concerns and how I deal with it, I think one of the main things is to remember there's the reason you're not going to find kind of cookbook answers in most textbooks or sources is there isn't because it really depends on the person, their regimen, how well controlled they are. So I wouldn't unless it was indicated, right? When that patient gets in, you know, I'm going to try to do these patients first thing in the morning. I'm going to get a finger stick blood glucose. I'm going to kind of look at that. And if I have concerns or if they're a little bit on the low side, I will do something to add some sugar back in because we want them uh, a touch on the sweet side, right? We want to avoid hypoglycemia and, you know, severe hyperglycemia, but also depends on the surgery. Are we doing something really quick, a five or 10 minute extraction versus a four hour procedure in the office? It's really a like a, more of a case by case, but unless I don't do it unless I need to is I guess where I'm going with that. Well, that's helpful. Thank you. Yeah. So let's shift back and talk about the sister of DKA HHS briefly before we kind of talk about those periop stuff. So HHS stands for hyperglycemic hyperosmolar state. And we can kind of generally associate this with those type two diabetics. There's an older term for this called honk. And honk stands for hyperglycemic hyperosmolar non-ketotic acidosis. So the term honk isn't used anymore. We call it HHS. And it's similar to DKA, but the thing is we have a little bit of insulin still working. So the cells don't have to go into this full alternate metabolic pathway. There's just a ton of sugar in the blood. And here, the range of the sugar is usually a lot higher. We're talking like usually between 600 to 1,000, really high blood sugar. You get all the same kind of presenting symptoms, but the dehydration is usually even worse, like eight to 10 liters. So we have even a larger dehydration because of all that sugar in the blood that's built up and causes us to urinate and pull all that osmotically, the fluid out of our body. So just kind of keep those as sister entities, I would say, in your minds. And there's one thing to note, which is a, a pretty rare, but serious and sometimes fatal complication of potentially both of these a little bit more associated with HHS of cerebral edema. And there's kind of a proposed pathophysiology where if you have such high levels of blood sugar and if they start treating it and tanking the level of sugar in your blood too fast, then the sugars in your brain inside the cerebrospinal fluid can't equilibrate fast enough. And this creates an osmotic gradient where the sugar level inside the cerebrospinal fluid is higher. It sucks water and you get cerebral edema and you know, have fatal complications. So important to recognize that you, you want to treat these, but also not too fast if you are ever on rotations or kind of doing those things. So let's start talking about drugs. Well, there's a ton of them. <laughs> so I would recommend, I'm not going to go into all of them or go through them. You have to really look up the ones. And, you know, I certainly have to do this myself about what the weird ones that your patient happens to be on that ensuring you know about it, any specific issues or side effects, but we'll kind of speak broadly about them for perioperative management. So kind of perioperative things. So consider additional workups, right? You know, especially if they're poorly controlled or they're like that patient you were describing, Grant, they show up and they had not had care in a long time. Preoperative basic metabolic panels, so HbA1c, possible EKG, pre and post finger stick, possibly intra-op, depending on how long your procedure is to check their blood sugar levels. Morning procedures are preferred for, especially for insulin dependent diabetics. In terms of adjusting some of their medications, we can decrease bedtime long acting insulin if it's a morning procedure, that basal insulin, if they take that in the morning, uh, we can cut that usually in half. Here, you, you'll see oftentimes it's written at 25% to 50%. 
remember, our goal is to keep them a little bit on the sweet side. We don't want them drifting into hypoglycemia. So if they're a little bit on the hyperglycemic side, that's okay. That's not really going to have too many ramifications, especially short term. Short and rapid acting insulin, we can hold the morning of. If they're taking ultra long acting insulin, which has an effect of around three days, that's like a, you know, I would always consult the endocrinologist because there's some wonky stuff to have to do with that. You're never wrong. And it's always recommended to consult their endocrinologist, the person managing this, especially if they're a brittle diabetic, if they've, if they're a type one, who's had multiple episodes of DKA. So, you know, this is where you use your clinical judgment, but you're never wrong by consulting. And, you know, even if, Hey, this is my plan for this, this is the surgery. It's going to be about this long. Does this sound good to you? Any other recommendations, you know, getting everybody together for the comprehensive treatment is always a good idea. In terms of the oral medications of which there are many, we can hold all of those on the day of surgery, except for the SGLT2 inhibitors, which the current recommendation is to hold for 24 hours before surgery. And these are drugs that end in lifloxacin, a drug like kenegliflozin. And I don't think I've ever personally seen a patient on one of these, but that's the only kind of accept kind of category for the orals. You want to have, have that held for 24 hours before pumps. A lot of people will be on pumps. I think they're wonderful things. Uh, you know, if I had diabetes and needed insulin, I would definitely want one of these because it just seems like a much easier pace of life for folks, but you never, ever stop a patient's insulin pump. You always want to consult endocrinology. Don't ever mess around with that. And remember these patients are at a higher risk for infection because of those impaired white blood cell function with that glycosylation. We need to be very careful with steroids. These are not patients that we're typically going to give steroids to. And we'll talk about steroids later, uh, a little bit more so. And I think it's a good idea to talk a little bit about IV dextrose, just like you brought up, Grant. For longer procedures, if they're unable to eat afterwards, you can consider it. But it's good to, especially the kind of emergency stuff that we probably don't think about what it is exactly and what it does exactly. So let's talk about D50. So D50 is dextrose 50%. And it's the most appropriate to use for severe hypoglycemia. You know, if we think about that, hey, hey, are you okay? We're starting our emergency algorithm and they're a diabetic and we get a finger sick and it gives us a blood glucose of 30, you know, something we want to treat aggressively. In our crash carts, this usually comes as a 50 cc syringe or in a hospital setting, a 50 milliliter bag. And usually the liquid dose of it is usually 50. And the concentration is usually 0.5 grams per milliliter, which equates to in that 50 cc syringe we're talking about that's in, you know, the most common one across crash carts and emergencies, there's 25 grams of dextrose or two. We give it IV over one to five minutes. We don't want to slam push it, but you, know, you can give it relatively rapidly. If you push it too fast, it can cause theoretically some phlebitis and some like localized inflammation. The rule of thumb is that if you give one gram of dextrose, it raises the blood sugar by about four to six. So giving 25 grams is going to raise the blood sugar by about 100 to 150. There's a little bit of range in there, but this effect is a little bit short-lived. It's about 30 minutes or so. So you will have to kind of repeat it. But when we, when we reach for that medicine and severe hypoglycemic emergency, this is what we're trying to do. If we give all that, it's really going to raise that blood sugar up substantially. What do you think? Any questions about that so far? Other things we should cover a little bit more, Grant? I mean, for the patients who you know, don't have IV access or not established. Cause I think a lot of these patients will come in, they're in a waiting room, they're local and all of a sudden they kind of crash, but you don't really have an IV in place. What do you recommend doing for those patients? 
That's a really good question. It's something that I would definitely recommend kind of thinking through and having some thoughtful context about how you prepare your emergency kit. Things that you can, ways that you can get somebody's sugar up without potentially jeopardizing the airway, right? So with this, I think a lot of folks will stash things like cake icing, where you can wipe a little bit on the inside of the cheek. I think the goal being to help reverse and raise that blood sugar and reverse that trend as your team is starting to try to get the IV access, but something kind of on the faster side. Things like large lollipops, you know, on like for emergency kit, some of the the large round lollipops, and I would even prep it out by having a string or something attached to the stem of it so that it's a very large object that you can control so that it's not going to go back inside their airway, especially for somebody who's, you know, not protecting their airway well. So yeah, we want to try to, how do we get sugar in without jeopardizing the airway, especially if they're that far gone, it's toward being that. And those would be kind of my recommendations, you know, a little bit of cake icing, not like a huge amount to potentially get back in there or some like the lollipop on like a string or something that you can control so that, that there's no chance that thing goes back in the airway as you're starting to, you know, proceed with that kind of, you know, medical management. Hey, real quick attention to all residents and fellows who graduated within the last six months. KLS Martin is offering one-time sale pricing for newly graduated oral and maxillofacial surgeons. The sale includes discounts on a VNR Cairo Pro with five hand pieces, the Spectra G6 headlight, which is awesome, oral surgery instrumentation, and in-office bone graft kit components. This is an incredible deal, so don't forget to ask your KLS reps about this. So please enjoy. Do you have any particular things you keep in your office or ways that you think about that? Yeah, I mean, we do the same. We have the cake icing type thing, but I think it's just important to be kind of aware of that. Like you're saying that there's an airway issue that can crash so quick. They're not conscious enough to be able to swallow a liquid because a lot of people will carry juices and think they're okay. But if the patient's unconscious, it could also be like you're saying uh, an airway management issue if you're putting things in there that are blocking the airway. The same type of stuff you're saying is kind of what's on my mind. Yeah. And for our listeners, if you haven't thought about this, definitely a good idea to, to take a look at your emergency kits and really think about this situation and check your, you know, do you have an amp of D50? What's the concentration? Think about these strategies for, you know, managing the hypoglycemic patient. Awesome. Well, I'll tell you what, Grant, let's move on to thyroid briefly. I just want to talk a kind of a little bit about the physiology of the thyroid. So the first step is, you know, we have the thyroid stimulating hormone, which is produced in the anterior pituitary. I'm going to kind of skim this, you know, obviously we could go a lot deeper, but that's not as relevant. So we'll just kind of do a little refresher for everybody here. There is an important kind of going back to the cardiology episode, a doctor vocabulary term that's relevant here, and that is tropism or tropic hormone. And tropic comes from Greek, and it means causing a change or affecting. And a tropic hormone is one that affects another endocrine gland. So a tropic hormone will usually cause release of another hormone instead of directly affecting a target end cell. And most are made in the anterior pituitary, and some examples are right in the name, ACTH, adrenocortical tropic hormone. So it literally tells you it's a tropic hormone right in the name of the actual hormone. And even though it's not in the name directly, TSH or thyroid stimulating hormone is in fact a tropic hormone. And so we have this production of the thyroid stimulating hormone, which goes down and then affects the thyroid, obviously. And the thyroid produces two things. It produces triiodothyrodine, T3 and thyroxine, T4, 
And these are major metabolic hormones. That's how I think about them. They really affect a lot, a ton of different physiologic processes, but really the metabolism of our bodies. And TSH causes a release of T3 and T4 into circulation in the bloodstream, although very little of it remains just unbound floating around, uh, less than 1%. Most of it is bound up by specialized transport proteins called thyroxin binding globulins, albumin, and there's other proteins that move it around. And when they eventually do have, there's some other conversions that go along, but it doesn't, you know, not really relevant to what we're discussing. They eventually bind to receptors on the mitochondria, which if we remember from high school biology is the powerhouse of the cell. They increase, (laughs) sorry, I had to get that a little in there. Thank you. (laughs) Nutrient breakdown, use of oxygen, production of ATP. So a bunch of different things involved in metabolism. For hypothyroidism, the most common cause is Hashimoto's thyroiditis, an autoimmune condition. Other things that cause hypothyroidism, uh, inflammation, congenital issues, surgically removal, medications, radiation. And for these folks, you, you know, you want to think about hypo and hyper as related to kind of metabolism. So somebody who has hypothyroidism, they're going to have weakness, cold intolerance, weight gain, very fatigued and sluggish. Whereas with hyperthyroidism, they're going to you know, have palpitations, heat intolerance, anxiety, you know, be kind of very revved up. The most common cause of hyperthyroidism is Graves' disease. Uh, and you can also have other things like multinodular diffuse goiter and some other issues. In general, labs, you know, we're going to look at their thyroid stimulating hormone, T3, T4, especially if they're hypothyroid, we can do a battery of kind of autoimmune labs. And that's going to be things like antithyroid globulin, anti-nuclear, anti-mitochondrial, anti-thyroid peroxidase. So there's all these different labs that, you know, may or may not result positive or negative. So taking a comprehensive look is usually done when they're kind of trying to work it up from potential autoimmune issues. And people who have hypothyroid, you know, we want to replace that, right? These patients are the ones who are taking Synthroid or other types of thyroid replacement, levothyroxine. For Graves' disease, I do want to talk about it a little bit more. It's an autoimmune condition where we have stimulation of the TSH receptors. That's the most common cause, like we talked about, of hyperthyroidism. And we have this interesting effect of exophthalmus, right? The ones we always associate with. But what's the actual pathophysiology that's going on there? Well, the autoantibodies are attacking fibroblasts within our orbit, which causes them to differentiate into adipocytes, which increases the fat content in our orbits. And this leads to venous compression, fluid accumulation, and the problem kind of spirals. Interestingly, and I wasn't aware of this until this last year, in 2020, they approved the first non-surgical medication treatment for this, for the exophthalmus, particularly Graves' disease, and a drug called Tepeza, and forgive me here, let's see, it's a teprotumumab. It's a monoclonal antibody that binds insulin-like growth factor one and particularly stops this differentiation of adipocytes in the orbit creating more fat. So, you know, I was reading through some of the studies that looked at it and there's actually a, a marked difference so much so that they got the drug fast tracked, like all the way through, but it's pretty interesting because before this is a very hard problem to treat. So now we do have a medication option to actually address that, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that's cool. The treatment of all kind of hyperthyroid too, we, there's specific medications that prevent conversion of three and T4, things like propylthiouracil and nephthimazole, Usually because of their revved up state, they'll also be on some beta blockers or calcium channel blockers, and they can have surgery to remove this or something like radioactive iodine 131 to ablate it. So a number of different things, but with these patients, you you always have the potential of a thyroid storm, which is an acute exacerbation that can be life-threatening. 
it can be usually triggered by something like surgery or an illness of non-thyroid origin. And really they just, this whole thing just gets turned up until they have such a hypermetabolic state. They have dysrhythmias, altered mental status, possibly MIs, nausea, vomiting, you know, all sorts of stuff. And treatment is really supportive as well as those medications we talked about helping to prevent conversion of T3 and T4, something like propylthiouracil. And so this is a patient who, if they came into your office to seek care for something like an infection or like a tooth that needed to be removed, and you were concerned they may have untreated hyperthyroidism, then really thinking about a little bit more workup or trying to treat them in a hospital setting might not be a bad idea to not push them over the edge into this kind of thyroid storm. I think seeing that patient might be a pretty rare thing in somebody's practice, maybe like once in a career kind of thing, somebody comes in with, you know, kind of the upregulated metabolic state that you're, you know, has not been diagnosed or treated before, but something to consider, I'd say. One quick question with these patients who have hypo or hyperthyroidism, have you heard of them being sensitive to other types of drugs? For example, I had this thought that, or for some reason I had learned, I thought at one point that hypothyroidism were kind of more sensitive to central nervous system type acting drugs like antidepressants and sedatives, whereas the hyperthyroid are more sensitive to, it makes sense, they're more sensitive to epinephrine and stuff that could be in our local anesthetic. Interesting. You know, I I hadn't heard that, but either plus or minus kind of up or down more sensitivities wouldn't surprise me necessarily. What I have noticed, and, you know, I think I'm sure anybody who's treated some of these patients has probably is that most of them, depending on if they're up or down, it requires a lot of titration work with the medicine provider and the patient, right? They're taking some dose, they need to go up on the dose, they need to go down. It's a constant up and down trying to find that point. And it's not necessarily a set point of how much is the appropriate amount to replace. So it can be kind of a moving target. And I think that, especially when they're chasing that and their bodies are not functioning at kind of a normal physiological level, that it can make things kind of out of whack a little bit. So asking them those questions is something I do if you have to kind of adjust doses up and down. Do you feel like it's well medicated at this point? Because oftentimes they'll tell you, hey, like, I feel like I'm not taking enough or, you know, I had to recently go up and just trying to gain more insight into that from their perspective is not a bad idea. And then just kind of going low and slow, you know, I think the same thing, you know, seeing how they respond, if they would be particularly sensitive, I assume at the wide ranges of the spectrum too, on the outsides of it, then they would be more likely to be sensitive if they were less well-controlled, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does. It seems like I see a lot more hypothyroidism in my practice. And it usually it seems like it's in combination with diabetes and obesity. It's kind of like a lot of that stuff is kind of hand in hand. Do you, do you see that as well? Yeah, absolutely. You know, especially when we're as well, if they, if it's an autoimmune condition causing it, then they may have a lot of other autoimmune issues, right? Like Sjogren's and rheumatoid arthritis and all sorts of things that, you know, then you start thinking about that if they have also fibromyalgia and it becomes a very complicated patient very quickly. That's absolutely kind of that constellation of a lot of different things, but yeah, it's definitely, I would say it's in the, from my practice and what I've seen that hypo is much more common than hyper. Lastly, I kind of want to talk about the adrenal gland a little bit and talk about steroids. The adrenal gland, right? Adrenal. And AD and AD in Latin means near, which and renal refers to the kidney. So they literally named this thing because it's sitting near the kidney, the adrenal glands. It's right on top, which I think is pretty cool. And it's made up of a cortex and medulla. 
Shout out to my histology teacher from first year of dental school, Dr. Barrett at Creighton University. And if my surgery friend, uh, Dr. Nick Kenny's listening to this, uh, I think he'll appreciate that reference. But she always said, uh, go find Rex salt sugar sex. And that's how I remember the layers of the cortex. The go find Rex stands for the zone of glomerulosa, fasciculata, and reticularis. And salt sugar sex refers to first mineralocorticoids affecting salt levels, sugars, glucocorticoids, and sex, sex hormones. So the first level there, the zone of glomerulosa and mineralocorticoids, the chief one we think about is aldosterone. Although there are others, aldosterone increases blood pressure by bringing back in salt in the distal convoluted tubule at the expense of potassium through an antiport mechanism. So if we kind of laterally think back to our discussion on the RAS pathway, you want to kind of shift this in your mind that once you finally get to angiotensin 2, it'll stimulate aldosterone, which will suck back in the salt and increase our blood pressure. And overexpression of aldosterone is called Kahn syndrome or primary hyperaldosteronemia. So here you would expect to see something like hypernatremia and hypokalemia along with hypertension if they had some sort of tumor expressing this. The next level down, we have glucocorticoids. These steroids decrease uh, pro-inflammatory pathways and inflammation. Cortisol is the basic example because it has many synthetic forms and medications. It does a ton of stuff with growth development, fluid hemostasis, metabolic effects, and probably more than we currently realize. So pretty broad effects of those hormones. The sex hormones, we're just not going to talk at all about because that's you know not our ballgame and refer you to somebody else for that talk. This brings us to the medulla. And the medulla is made up of chromaffin cells. And it's important to remember these are neural crest in origin or neuroectoderm. And I kind of think about this, you know, the adrenal medulla tied in with some oral pathology things in my mind. You know, if we remember things of neural crest origin stain S100 positive, right? We have that weird one that we always learn in oral path, the melanotic neuroectodermal tumor of infancy, things like schwannomas, any type of neural crest tumor or anything is going to stain like that. And the medulla produces catecholamines, specifically epinephrine and norepinephrine. And if you have suppression or destruction, we can get adrenal insufficiency. Or conversely, if we have a tumor, a theochromocytoma, we can get hypersecretion of catecholamines. Often worked up in patients, but rarely found. I believe the incidence off the top of my head is something like one in a million. So, but a lot of times if you have unexplained tachycardias, it's part of the part of the workup. In general, if somebody has an issue with these, you want to ask about history of adrenal resection, known adrenal insufficiency, exogenous steroid use, and the kind of focus on steroids a little bit because it's something that's super common and most of us use a lot of. The old way of kind of thinking about steroids and steroid supplementation specifically was the rule of twos, right? If they're taking 20 milligrams of cortisone or if it's equivalent for two weeks, Within two years, then they'll need steroid supplementation. But the rule of twos is out of the window. It's not evidence-based. And it's been shown that we are probably doing a lot of excessive and unnecessary supplementation following that kind of guideline. So the current approach is to determine coverage based on the history of steroid intake and the likelihood that the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis is suppressed, as well as the type and duration of surgery. And again, if you're considering supplementing or if they have, you know, kind of a more moderate to severe problem and they're on steroids, consult with their, you know, managing team and endocrinologist. So one way we break it up is how do we kind of define what a non-suppressed HPA access would be? And that would be for folks taking steroids for less than three weeks or prednisone 10 milligrams or less daily, you just continue their same regimen perioperatively. 
they're unlikely to have suppression at these doses. For somebody who is likely to be suppressed, they that kind of is defined as prednisone 20 milligrams or more for three weeks or more. If they have a Cushingoid appearance, then you might want to additionally cover that patient. And then there's this weird intermediate one, right? And here's where, you know, we're not going to do this, but you can uh, stop the steroids for 24 hours, draw a serum cortisol level, measure it. And then if needed, if it's still intermediate, do a corticotropin stimulation test. So a little bit more about actual stimulating it. Residents, I would read up on that if you're not familiar with it. And then for patients who are taking exogenous corticosteroids, we break it down by procedure. So a minor procedure, which they define as a, these recommendations, by the way, a lot of them are from the collated evidence on UpToDate. I very much, you know, really like that. But an inguinal hernia repair is minor procedure. So surgery under local, just take their usual dose, no extra steroids are needed. Moderate surgical stress, which they define as a total joint replacement. So probably most of the surgeries in our world, even the bigger ones would fall into this moderate category. You take your normal dose of steroids, just a little bit extra, 50 milligrams of hydrocortisone IV before the procedure, 25 milligrams Q8 for 24. So like a little bit more for 24 hours and then resume normal. And then major surgical open heart surgery, you're going to just give a little bit more, 100 milligrams hydrocortisone before, 50 milligrams Q8 times 24, and then taper the dose by half until normal level. So it's pretty rare that we would ever be in that major category. If you're not familiar, I would recommend everybody, if you haven't looked at it in a while, you can Google and look up a corticosteroid conversion chart, right? This tells you how much of the steroids are equivalent to the other parts. And what I'm going to do now is kind of walk through what we usually do and convert them for you so we can get some context behind that. So most of these, what we just talked about, they talk about hydrocortisone or cortisone. And so the approximate equivalent dosing is mostly set by these. So we're going to talk about equivalent doses for 25 milligrams of cortisone, which is equal to 20 milligrams of hydrocortisone. So that's kind of like, we'll just think about that as a single dose, right? 20 and 25. For dexamethasone, the equivalent dose is 0.75 milligrams. I'll say that again. So it's 0.75 milligrams of dexamethasone or decadron, the pure synthetic glucocorticoid we use all the time, is equivalent to 20 milligrams of hydrocortisone. So say we're giving eight milligrams of dexamethasone, that's equivalent to 213 milligrams of hydrocortisone, a fair, fairly large amount. And remember that dexamethasone has a half-life of about 36 to 54 hours, meaning it's effective for about three days plus or minus a chunk. You know, this is a lot of times where that, besides the inflammation pathways kind of ramping up, our steroids wear off and our patients get more swollen around days three to five uh, as that kind of ramps up and kicks in. And if you actually look up the recommended dosing for decadron or dexamethasone, it's at extremely wide range. I believe it's 0.1 to 0.5 mg per kit, right? You'll see, you know, if we're helping out in anesthesia and doing pediatric stuff for ear tubes or tonsils, a lot of times they'll give the kids 12 milligrams of decadron, right? And you're like, wow, that's a, a lot comparatively. Well, it's just, a, it's a super wide range and it depends, you know, what you're using it for. The other one I want to just discuss briefly is another one that folks may prescribe fairly commonly, and that's a Medrol dose pack. If you haven't seen it, it's a, you know, you write a prescription, just take one Medrol dose pack, follow instructions. The patients get it and it kind of looks like a bar graph. There's six pills the first day, five pills the second day, four pills the third day until it's kind of goes out. And this drug is methylprednisolone. And each tab here is equivalent to four milligrams and four milligrams or one tab of this is equivalent to 
one standard dose of Decadrama, 0.75. So that first day when they take the all six pills out of a pack, it's equivalent to 4.5 milligrams of Decadrama or 120 milligrams of hydrocortisone. So the take home point I'm trying to emphasize by doing the math conversion for you is that a Medrol dose pack or kind of our normal dose of Decadron does provide the highest level of steroid supplementation. Now, if I was still doing it on somebody, I would still use the intraoperative hydrocortisone dosing just because that is the recommendation. But postoperatively, and as you're thinking about it, what we're doing is usually providing steroid supplementation to a pretty high degree and honestly probably higher than even what they recommend. So I wanted to do the math for you so you didn't have to, but what do you think, Grant? Any kind of questions about that? Yeah, that's helpful to review that kind of steroid equivalency of each of those medications. I think like you're saying, most of us are administering dexamethasone with some pretty routine consistency to those patients, you know, even just four full bony thirds. I think most surgeons would, would give some dexamethasone IV before or after the, right, the procedure. I think usually it's probably around six to eight milligrams most are giving. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the thought is to decrease postoperative inflammation, edema, and get them through those first three or four days. Yeah. I personally, I like to use eight milligrams of Decadron and most of my normal, normal third more kind of case for that reason, right? I like to have the effect of the decrease of the postoperative nausea, vomiting, really try to limit those inflammatory pathways. And I'm curious about what you think. To the best of my knowledge, I don't think there's any evidence that shows that administering steroids before the procedure, after, or during makes any difference. Physiologically, I would assume that it doesn't matter because of the time it takes for it to kind of kick in and work versus some of the other medications we, we may use. So I think that it's equivocal. I believe I saw off the top of my head a couple studies in the last three or four years that kind of looked at that and showed equivalency. But I'm curious about what, if you've seen anything or if it really, to the best of my knowledge, I don't think it matters. But if readers, if you happen to know, or listeners, if you happen to know something, please reach out and let me know. This is a topic that I've been thinking about more lately because I routinely would give it kind of at the end of the procedure, or maybe in the middle. My thought was give it after the initial sedative medications are really kicking in because it can cause that itching, you know, and patients are moving around kind of itching. It's uncomfortable. Because in residency, we, for some reason, we were like, give that first and they're itching before they're even asleep. And so that didn't make sense. But then I did a podcast recently with um, a Dr. Funderburk, who was describing how he gives it kind of right at the beginning with his initial dose of Versed and ketamine and how he had two of his patients recently or in the last couple of years have Versed and ketamine allergies. And oh, wow. because he had given the the dexamethasone, right, with those drugs at the beginning, they had a less kind of severe allergic response. Um, it was still pretty severe, and, and these people needed some epinephrine and stuff to get through it. That kind of got me thinking more about maybe the importance of giving it earlier in the procedure, just in case there's some type of allergic response. Or, I mean, there's so, like you're saying, so many other benefits, anti-nausea and, and vomiting type things. And so I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not sure. I haven't done a real deep dive on the literature stuff, but there's so many opinions about when to give this. I know. Yeah. I usually give it at the end. I know some people, I don't think it matters too much, can argue that the little bit of kind of the steroids can have a little bit of an effect of kind of waking you up from the pure synthetic glucocorticoids to help kind of get through things. But 
What I noticed is on the backside, I almost never, ever see the pronounced groin itching, whereas on the front side, you often do. But yeah, it's certainly a point, you know, if you're hedging your bets against an allergic response, then that would definitely be, uh, that's certainly a scary thing, uh, you know, reverse heteroketamine allergy, geez. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty rare, but I guess it can happen. No, but that's a good review, I think, of these endocrine type disorders. It's something that I think we're all um, very familiar with diabetes and kind of in that on a daily basis with our patients and checking on it, but still reviewing some of the complications that can happen like DKA and some of the pathophysiology going on there and how to treat it. And then the thyroid and adrenal type issues is, I think, also common, but just not as maybe pronounced and doesn't have quite the same common emergencies that diabetics do. Yeah. But good to be aware of all these things. Any other comments on this topic? I would just say that for those of you who are, you know, more the residents or, you know, folks trying to deep dive it, kind of other entities that fit under this that we're a little too deep diving to talk about today, but I'd recommend really spending time with are things like Cushing's, Addison's, Waterhouse Friedrichsen syndrome, all the multiple endocrine neoplasias, SIADH, and diabetes insipidus or DI. So to me, those all kind of fall under this umbrella and are worth, if you're trying to, you know, kind of deep dive this topic, spend some time with those and really think about as well. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. One rapid fire question at the very um, end here is what's, is there any more good books you've been reading lately or movies you've been watching you'd like to enlighten us with? (laughs) (laughs) I recently went back to one of the classics that I just picked up again for, you know, the umpteenth time is A Farewell to Arms by Ernest Hemingway. I'm a big fan of Hemingway and I kind of slipped back into a little Hemingway phase. So if you're not familiar or haven't, it's got a beautiful, sparse writing style that is strangely beautiful. I would definitely recommend, uh, if you haven't read Farewell to Arms, uh, taking a look at it. Oh, that's terrific. Good job recommending a classic and not (laughs) like a cutting-edge self-help book on Audible. I I really appreciate that. (laughs) That's great. All right. Thank you so much for your time, and I really appreciate you doing this. Yeah, let's let's meet again and, and get some more information going. I appreciate it. No problem. Just let me know thoughts for anything future in terms of what you want to hit or run. And yeah, we'll keep it rolling, man. I love it. Sounds good. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks, dude. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Once again, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com if you have any topics you'd like to hear about, guests you'd like to hear from. Or if you yourself would love to be a guest, please, please email me or text me at 720-441-6059. And also just love hearing from people if you enjoy the podcast or, you know, learn something from it or talk to a friend or connected with someone because of the podcast. That just makes my day. So please shoot that correspondence over to me and I will see you on the next episode. Thank you.